We're back with the Tech Policy Grind. I'm Daniela Guzman-Pena, a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. This week, Internet Law and Policy Foundry fellow Caitlin Ringrose chatted with the ACLU's Jay Stanley on aerial surveillance law and policy, with a spotlight on the work that the ACLU is doing to keep you safe from so-called eyes in the sky. Caitlin is Google's global policy lead for law enforcement and government access, and is hosting this episode in her capacity as a Foundry fellow and privacy professional. Thank you, Jay, for being here with me today. For everyone listening, my name is Caitlin Ringrose, and I'm a Foundry Fellow. I'm so happy to be here chatting today with Jay Stanley. Jay is a Senior Policy Analyst at the ACLU Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Thank you so much for joining the Tech Policy Grind, Jay. Thanks for having me on. So, Jay, we met and actually dug through my old email inbox to find this exact date at a Virginia Tech conference when I was a law student working on an article about police use of body-worn cameras and the race toward equipping those cameras with facial recognition technology. Now, five years later, we're still talking about cameras and surveillance, but you're looking at the kind that are in the sky. So your work is mostly on aerial surveillance and the rise in eyes in the sky. Can you tell us a little bit about just first how you got into policy? Yeah, so I actually went to grad school to get a PhD in 20th century American political and intellectual history at UVA. and. Uh, kind of decided I didn't want to be an academic and took a job with Forrester Research, uh, which is a technology research company in Boston, and did some technology policy um, uh, w- around what was then called the information superhighway. <laughs> and, um, and part of what I covered there was privacy. And I met uh, this guy at the ACLU who was heading up a new privacy team at the ACLU. And he had an opening and I jumped over to the ACLU. I started five weeks before 9-11, so I've been there forever. Um, but I've seen a lot of uh, water go under the bridge. Amazing. Uh, as a English and anthropology major, I appreciate that. Yeah, I um, passed about for a, a number of diff- dissertation topics, but um, I was very interested in the history of conservatism. Um, I did my master's thesis on Robert A. Taft who was a sort of libertarian Republican um, and opposed the U.S. military buildup uh, during the Cold War as, because he thought it was uh, you know, a sign of big government, opposed the draft, um, and became a, was a very interesting figure in the sort of transition uh, of conservatism from uh, an older sort of libertarian streak that got buried during the Cold War because... His party, the Republican Party, made so much hay beating up Truman for being weak on losing China, being weak on communism, that that sort of those sort of strands of libertarian conservatism in Congress really got buried um, and started to emerge after the cold after the Cold War ended, after the wall fell. Um, you started to see Republicans opposing military spending, but then after 9/11. Um, really submerged again, at least at the national political level, for the most part, although there are many libertarian-leaning Republican congressmen who 
are very suspicious of surveillance. And so among all the people at the ACLU, I probably do more work um, with conservatives and more work that conservatives approve of um, than any of my colleagues who work on other issues. Yeah, I think one of my favorite projects was working with the Koch Foundation and then also working with prison abolitionists on uh, privacy rights of incar- incarcerated library patrons, right? And we all had shared goals. And it's funny how you can bring everyone to the table. Yeah, our saying at the ACLU is we have no permanent friends or permanent enemies, just permanent principles. And we find that on privacy and surveillance issues, a lot of conservative Americans have um, beliefs and instincts that really align with ours. And so we happily um, ally with them on those issues. Speaking of your work at the ACLU, you've tackled everything from airlines profiling passengers to the privacy issues inherent with full body scanning at an airport. That's just your aerospace focused work. How did you develop this interest in commercial and now unmanned flight? Yeah, so, um, you know, our, our overarching concern that, that, that floats over all the particular privacy concerns we have about various technologies and various practices, of course, is that we not turn into a general surveillance society. Um, you can argue how much of success the ACLU and our allies have had in the 22 years that I've been at the ACLU, but that's, that's our biggest concern. And, you know, having floating robotic cameras in the skies above our communities seems like a pretty bad thing in that score. And so, you know, I started getting some calls from reporters about drones probably in the around 2003, 2004. But at that time, it was really just this sort of sexy, far off futuristic technology and reporters love writing stories about things like that. And so I would I would talk about the potential future privacy implications. But then around 2011, 2012, the issue kind of got real. Um, drones really started to make an appearance. Some police departments started to adopt them. Um, and the FAA began to give out um, special permission for some police departments and other government agencies to fly drones. And so, and then, in the, you know, and then 2013, 2014, 2015, we saw a lot of state legislatures really interested in passing uh, regulations on police use of drones, warrant requirements and the like. And these were debated in, you know, a majority of the state legislatures and a good number passed various laws of varying quality in our view. Um, and, you know, we've only seen the aerial surveillance issues grow since then, um, you know, crude and uncrude. Um, some cases it's helicopters um, or the like. Uh, and the privacy issues aren't that different, but the privacy issues are definitely sharpened because, you know, a helicopter can cost $15 million and you have to have a ground crew and a maintenance crew and pilots and all the like, and it all adds up. And so only the most well-funded police departments can have a helicopter, whereas, you know, drones are cheap. And so, um, you know, quantity changes the quality of the issues that are at stake. It's really interesting. I hadn't thought about the inherent inequalities evident in what police departments are able to, to buy in regards to aerial surveillance. It's also fun to hear that surveillance was once a sexy futurism. I don't know if, if that's how folks see it now. Yeah, I think that in many ways, um, those of us who are privacy advocates, you know, say in the first Bush administration after 9-11, we sounded like nutcases to a lot of people talking about you know, the, the, the looming potential for surveillance that new technologies were bringing us. Um, and I think, unfortunately, it would have been good to be proven wrong, but unfortunately, 
uh, you know, we've been all too vindicated, as you can see, surveillance coming at us from so many different directions and so many different technologies today, which is not to say, some people say, oh, they throw up their arms and say, well, I guess we just lost and we've all lost our privacy, so there's no reason to fight, which is the furthest thing from the truth, because we still do have a lot of privacy in a lot of different areas. And so it's too glib to say that. Um, the battles are ongoing. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, in the long term, I think that there's a very good chance that privacy will win out. That has happened in the past. Um, it just can take a while because, you know, people, it takes a while for people to realize the ways in which their privacy is being invaded. I don't think privacy is dead. I don't think either of us would work in this field if, if we did think that. Can you give us examples of ways that aerial surveillance hampers or chills speech? The ACLU just has so much fantastic work on the First Amendment, and it seems like drones, as you've characterized them, surveilling our communities, are putting that under threat. Yeah, so I work for a a team at the ACLU called the Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. And there's a good reason why our speech work and our privacy work are under one umbrella, because they're intimately connected in many ways. And so if if people feel they're being surveilled, whether by an eye in the sky or in any other way, they're less likely to feel free to go out, to express themselves, um, to challenge the powers that be, um, to become a, you know, a dissident against either, you know, the current government's policies or the conventional social wisdom of Americans. Plus, a lot of people are just very scared of the police and have good reason to be. And so if they feel as though there's an overwhelming police presence at even a peaceful uh, rally or march or protest, they're less likely to turn out. And we need, we have, and we need to go to extraordinary lengths in this country to make sure that people feel free to exercise their uh, rights of free expression. And so, um, you know, during the George Floyd Black Lives Matter protests, we saw um, DHS deploying and other agencies deploying drones, large drones over some of those protests, um, a lot, you know, the helicopters. There was a case in uh, D.C. during one of the protests. It was the same day that Trump marched across Lafayette Square. Um, they cleared the square just so he could do that and pose for a, a photo op. Um where a Black Hawk helicopter came down low over a bunch of protesters um, and created, you know, drafts strong enough to break tree limbs. And, you know, in the law enforcement field, that's known as a show of force to intimidate people um, and dissuade them, in theory, dissuade them from committing any crimes. But really, we often, unfortunately, find that um, many law enforcement departments um, engage in policing of protests, not to keep the peace, but to intimidate protesters, often because they don't like the content of what the protesters are calling for. Obviously, when police reform is the subject of, uh, and criticism of law enforcement is the subject of your protest, that's definitely going to be true, but it's true in many other cases as well. Um, it, it certainly can be important for law enforcement to be present at a protest. What happened in Charlottesville was because the Charlottesville police failed um, in what other law enforcement experts said was their their job, which was to keep the protesters and the counter-protesters separate. Um, but at the same time, proper police roles often 
very quickly turn into highly improper intimidation and the like. And we've already seen reports of, you know, police putting protesters over, you know, tiny little protests of some, some teachers protesting their salary or 20 people gathering in a park and the police throw a drone over that. You can argue about whether the police should deploy drones over the Super Bowl or over a march of, you know, 70,000 people. Um, we're skeptical, but you can argue about that. But, but because drones are so cheap, we're already seeing them being highly overused when it comes to monitoring and surveilling any kind of protest or, or, um, or march. You had some great achievements at the ACLU from publishing white papers, cataloging the use of drones by law enforcement, exactly to what you've just noted, to proposing legislation limiting those uses and requiring warrants, all the way to fighting the rampant and persistent overuse of drones by specific agencies you just mentioned, DHS. One of the drone companies you worked so hard to shed light on was actually called Persistent Surveillance Systems. Could you dig into that and some of your biggest wins? Yeah, you got to love it when your antagonists, uh, you know, give give their um, give their technology a very honest uh, name. And we've seen this over the years with other things such as an um, FBI surveillance thing called Carnivore, um, a government program called Total Information Awareness. Um, and then again, this company called Persistent Surveillance Systems and their, their, um, product was, it was actually not a drone, but a crewed aircraft, like a Cessna that would fly over a city, um, you know, 12, 14 hours a day, just in circles. And they had attached to the, um, plane a gigapixel surveillance camera, hugely powerful camera that could photograph basically a, like a 32 square mile area at once. And, track the comings and goings of every pedestrian and vehicle in that area. Um, basically like a TiVo recording of a whole city. Um, and so, um, you know, that is an, an enormous power. And uh, this guy named Ross McNutt, whose company it was, uh, I met him at a conference and he came up to me and asked to, to talk and asked, you know, we sat down and came to my office and we had a meeting and he asked for um, uh you know, us to help him come up with a privacy policy. And I had to tell him there is no privacy policy that will make us be okay with this technology. Um, and he deployed it in Baltimore. The Baltimore police deployed it. Um, and, uh, and we, my colleagues, Brett Max Coffin and Ashley Gorski, who are litigators, um, for the ACLU filed a lawsuit arguing that it was a violation of the fourth amendment to engage in that kind of, uh, vast, you know, sort of, um, you know, overwhelming surveillance and they won, they won, uh, in, in the circuit court. And that right now is the, you know, is, is a precedent as the courts figure out how to address the tricky questions around exactly how much privacy we have in public and exactly how much technology changes the privacy that we should be able to expect, um, the protections that, 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 the Fourth Amendment extend to new technologies and the like. This company had crewed aircraft, but if the FAA rules allowed it, it would, it would be trivial for them to just turn it into a drone and greatly expand the, the surveillance. And I was worried we would see this over every city in America. You mentioned the FAA. When I think about U.S. regulators, I'm mostly focused on the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, but you've provided input to the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA. 
what is the process of providing them policy guidance or input, especially when, to me, they seem like an agency that's not really used to privacy rulemaking? No, they're not. And they've steadfastly refused to engage in the privacy issues um, insisting that they are merely a safety issue and that any kind of social implications of these technologies is not their department. Um, and that has been a, even to the extent of like not um, carrying out congressional orders to produce a report on the privacy issues. Uh, so that has been a problem. But nonetheless, they make a lot of decisions that have a lot of significant implications for the future of drones. And so we have worked to try to influence those decisions, um, some cases filing comments, uh, you know, uh, with them on a regulatory proceeding or you know, regulations that they're proposing. And in other cases, in two cases, I have been invited by them to participate in what's called an aviation rulemaking committee, which provides advice to them before they drop proposed regulations. It's interesting because so many technologies like, say, license plate scanners, um, you know, they have significant privacy implications, implications for the balance of power between individuals and the state and companies in some cases. Um, you know, police just go out and buy them and start in and install them and start using them without ask, without telling, let alone asking the communities that they serve if this is something they want. But that hasn't been the case with drones because the FAA has been really holding back the deployment of drones. Um, they've had very strict rules that they are gradually loosening the reins on. So one that is currently in the pipeline that really could be proved to be revolutionary is they currently don't allow drones to be flown beyond the visual line of sight of the operator of the drone. Um, and that greatly restricts the ways that law enforcement agencies and everybody else can use drones. If they come up with a rule that allows by right um, beyond visual line of sight flights, that's going to really open up the skies to all kinds of new uses. There are only um, you know, 10 to 20 departments that are um, engaging in what are called drones as first responder programs. And that means when you dial 911, they send a drone to your house or your other location. Um, and the drone gets there first and gives the police video of what's going on. But every department will be able to do it if the FAA um, opens up the skies in that way. So, you know, everything that's happening now is sort of um, preparatory towards the big battles that we're going to see as the FAA increasingly opens up the skies. I've heard connected cars and privacy experts kind of use this phrase that cars nowadays are basically smartphones on wheels. This is a very random question, but if cars are the new phones, what are drones? I would say drones are a combination of our phones and video cameras in a way. I mean, they're flying video cameras, which is many ways is much more significant than sort of a stationary video camera, like on a pole or what have you, because it can, it can see an entire city at once. A town could have, you know, pretty cheaply buy a hundred drones and have them on autonomous patrols, flying back, self-docking, self-recharging. And now you've got 24 seven aerial surveillance of the whole city in the way, you know, uh, the way that Baltimore was trying to do. You could have so many drones being used for so many little purposes you know, police are, are flying to the, where anywhere that anybody calls nine nine one one from. Um, they're flying for this purpose. They're flying for that purpose. They're going to traffic accidents and all the rest. That you have, you end up just having so many police helicopters crisscrossing the skies. You kind of edge towards the same functional equivalent. Um, and so, in some ways, that would be like our phones tracking our location. Uh, 
but also could, you know, collect video of what we're actually doing, who we're actually with, um, uh, what we're wearing, what we're carrying, and anything else that could be revealed by video and video analytics, which can uh, automate a lot of the, you know, the analysis of video streams and also the search of um, large pools of video data. That's actually where I was going to go next. We can't run a tech policy podcast without mentioning AI. Are you concerned about the rise in more sophisticated AI or machine learning models that are going to spur potentially more innovation in this unmanned aircraft surveillance space? I can imagine that increasingly smarter drones are only going to grow more autonomous and dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that AI can do for drones is, as you said, you know, make them autonomous so that you don't have to have a pilot. And again, that just further reduces the cost of throwing up a surveillance tool into the sky. Um, you could, in theory, you could have drones making autonomous decisions about where to go or where to point their cameras, where to zoom in um, based on autonomous decisions about what is quote unquote suspicious. Um, and of course, like any AI system that makes a decision like that, it's enormously um, open to all kinds of discriminatory and biased decision-making there. And you end up, you know, collecting video disproportionately um, of people of color, people in low-income communities. Um, there are, um, there are also, of course, AI is, is, is looking, is being looked at as ways to make drones um sort of navigate more autonomously so they can avoid obstacles better and so forth. And that could be a good safety measure, um, narrowly viewed. But again, it could also lead to these, you know, more complex autonomous flights in more places, like not just flying about around a city, but also navigating through the woods or something. Um, that could make it easier for drones to be used in abusive ways that violate, um, you know, the Fourth Amendment by going into your property, for example. Um, there are, of course, you know, drones, one of the primary purposes is of drones is collecting video. And one of the things that really concerns me is the rise of video analytics and machine learning, which is a prime area of research in AI. And, you know, we collect an enormous amount of video. There's an enormous number of video cameras across our country already. But most of the time, nobody watches the vast majority of that video because it's boring and nobody wants to pay anybody to watch it. Nothing happens most of the time. But video analytics is increasingly allowing that video to be monitored live or later. It's just not monitored by a human. It's monitored by an AI who might alert a human that there's something suspicious going on here. Um, and so this is a huge industry now. And in fact, most cameras, manufacturers, surveillance camera manufacturers, have stopped competing on things like, you know, quality of the, of the image and how many pixels and so forth. They're all competing on how good their video analytics are. So, um, this is here now and that would apply to video by drones, just like it would apply to any other video, which means, for example, drones flying around a city, you know, that could be combed by an AI looking for, you know, people who are just behaving suspiciously in their backyards. Um, um, you know, drug grows or, um, you know, people who aren't in compliant with local rules about what they, you know, how close their fire pit is to their house. And, you know, the line, the, the, the list probably goes on and on. Um, and so 
you know, we don't want the chilling effects that come from that kind of aerial surveillance where like, you know, you're, you are a high school wrestling pro and you're teaching your kids some wrestling moves in your backyard and the police drone flies overhead. And now you're going to be like, Oh no, is the, is the law enforcement going to misinterpret what's happening here? And they're going to send somebody come raid my house. We don't want to live having to worry that everything we do will be misinterpreted um, by some eye in the sky. And that's really the whole ball game here. Sorry for the puns, but when you're looking out over the horizon of surveillance law and policy, Jay, <laughs> what are your biggest upcoming policy files for 2024? I personally, I am, you know, in my role at the ACLU, I tend to, to follow the issues that are a little bit in front of the bow where there might not be any litigation or lobbying yet. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to be continuing to work on drones and monitoring what the FAA is doing. And, and we're seeing right now we're seeing kind of a cusp of an explosion of use by police departments, as we've been talking about. I'm following license plate scanners and particularly, you know, these companies like Flock that are building local um, license plate scanners into a nationwide infrastructure searchable that gives basically vast intelligence powers to even the smallest town police chief. I wrote a paper about that last year. I'm working on digital identity. Um, another issue where I think we are currently about to see revolutionary developments and we may wake up one day and find that every time you want to go on site and watch a video or shop for cat beds or do anything else that, that every website's going to be demanding that you push a button and send them your digital uh, driver's license. Um, I'm working on digital currency a little bit. There's a lot of talk in the U.S., about creating a government digital currency, a digital dollar. Um, President Biden issued an executive order declaring that to be a priority. And so that's a very serious thing that not many people are paying attention to, but trying to be part of those conversations and stress that if that kind of thing is to be created, it can't be a surveillance coin and that it needs to have cash-like privacy properties. Um, and then I, you know, I work on a sort of a long tail of other issues where nobody else at the ACLU will well, it's following it, things like, um, you know, police robots, gunshot detectors, um, biometrics other than face recognition. We have a lot of people doing great work on face recognition um, and, and things like that. That's an amazing portfolio. I'm very jealous. We should all want to have your job. Uh, it sounds fantastic. Let me know if you, if you need to hire <laughs> UJ. Um, for anyone listening to this podcast and... If you've gotten to this point and you're listening, I do want to say I had initially titled this Droning On About Surveillance, but it, it seemed a little a little rude to both of us. What actions do you want listeners to take? Should we be taking commercial drones out of our shopping carts? Should we be calling our state representatives, asking them to pass warrant requirements? Should we just buy ACLU swag and support your work? Well, you should definitely do that, but not only do that. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that educating yourself on these upcoming issues um, and, um, you know, making your voice heard in all of the usual ways, uh, it's, it's, you know, I mean, when the public is paying attention and expresses opinions on these things, it really matters because so many of these issues seem very abstruse um, and, uh, and, you know, I think that often the government uses the sort of, you know, vacuum of conversation and vacuum of rules and reactions to new technology to engage in kind of a land rush and just go in and start putting practices in place and making them a fait accompli before anybody has a chance to object. And now you're, now you're, now you're fighting something that's already happening and it's much harder. 
Um, and, you know, in terms of don't buy a drone, I wouldn't say that at all. I mean, we actually have a complicated view towards drones. I said I was, you know, advocating with the FAA, but we, you know, we, we support the right of, for example, protesters or individuals to use drones, uh, in, in, you know, to, Acting as reporters, we support the media using, be able to, being able to use drones and not to have their drone flights shut down by police, but also individuals who are acting as reporters. And there was a case in Texas like 10 years ago or more where an amateur drone uh, operator uh, flew over a slaughterhouse and captured video of a river of pig's blood flowing into, um, you know, a, re- a real river and, uh, and that was used, I, I believe there were criminal charges filed in that case, environmental charges filed in that case. And so, um, we support drones. Um, we're, we're pro technology. We just think that technology needs to serve and empower individuals, not, you know, just big companies and government agencies. Thank you so much, Jay. Before you go, two more quick questions. First off, I know we're both fans of podcasts. I always demand to, to, hear more about what you're listening to. So if you have any recommendations for us, that would be amazing. You know, I kind of, I don't listen to podcasts that much because I'm not in my car very often. But um, one podcast that I've really been entranced with uh, is, it has nothing to do with what I do for a living. It's the History of English podcast by Kevin Stroud. And it is absolutely fascinating and has absolutely nothing to do with anything I'm working on and absolutely nothing to do with any of the political issues that are roiling the world. Um, but it's sort of a history of English and kind of on the way a history of um, Europe. And it is super fascinating. I would say about one out of out of every three or four smart people that I recommend it to just, just really, really find that they love it. Um, and every episode seems to have some mind-blowing thing if you're interested in, in you know, our language, the English language. Awesome. Well, because we're on the subject of podcasts, I'm going to play a game with you very quickly here before you go that I've stolen from another podcast called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is, Jay, I want you to tell me which of these news headlines you think are fake. I'm going to give you three headlines and then just, you know, tell me which one you think is is false or fake news. The first is, ready? I'm ready. This sounds fun. The first is teen flying a drone discovers two trapped in car in a flooded sinkhole. This story is about an 18 year old flying his drone near a canal in Colorado. He spotted an overturned vehicle submerged in a sinkhole and rescued the folks in that car. Okay. The second is... And, and to be frank, this one is from Daily Mail, so it could go either way. It's, <laughs> is this a Chinese spy balloon moment? Famous cube in a sphere UFO spotted along the East Coast. Okay. So that's kind of similar to our, our Chinese spy balloon. Um, and then the third title is, in this beach town, sometimes cops arrive to the scene with a drone. It's about the Santa Monica police force. Which one do you think is false? Uh, the second one? The well, again, Q- that was Daily Mail. But, uh, oh. <laughs> no, that one is a oh. real headline. Oh, oh okay. 
Um, well, I would say that it would have to be the first one, though, although there have been people who there was a story about somebody who found a wrecked car with a drone and reported it to the authorities. But maybe but I, I didn't hear about the sinkhole thing. So must be that one. The sinkhole is also correct. The teenager did find a car submerged in a It's actually the third story. Santa Monica police are not showing up with a drone. Drones are the first responders. And so right. oftentimes drones are showing up to the scene far in advance of, of any humans, of any folks who are able uh, to get their hands dirty and offer help. So, you know, still, still true. Uh, should have got, gotten that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much for being here with me, Jay. Uh, and just to say, this is the kickoff of our surveillance mini series where we focus in on the voices of experts in the surveillance space. And it's really fun to have started with you uh, and to be able to have that aerial view of the entire arena. So to speak. Thanks, Caitlin. It was, it was a lot of fun chatting about it. The Tech Policy Grind podcast was created by the fellows at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. It's produced and edited with support from Foundry Fellow, editor and co-executive producer, Evan Enzer, and myself, Daniela Guzman-Pena. Special thanks to Jay Stanley for his collaboration and support in bringing this episode to air. I and other Foundry Fellows engage with the Foundry voluntarily and in our personal capacities. The views and opinions expressed on air do not reflect on the organizations we are affiliated with. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tech Policy Grind podcast. Be sure to check out the Foundry on LinkedIn and Twitter. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It really helps out the show. If you're interested in supporting the show, reach out to us at foundrypodcasts at ilpfoundry.us. You can find our email in the show notes as well. See you next time.